Well, have you ever heard of The Sims? The Sims. Uh, the Sims is a strategy-based life simulation computer game. I've never played it, just heard about it. It's a simulation of the daily activities of one or more virtual persons called Sims in a suburban household near Sim City. You're in control in the game of nearly every aspect of the lives of the individuals who make up your chosen population in the neighborhood. Characters are developed from the ground up and you infuse into them and mold them with personalities, looks, desires, moods, urges, living arrangements, career and personal choices, lifestyles, and even reactions. Five personality traits are rated from zero to ten and include basic areas of sloppy to neat. You can make your sim sloppy if you want to or neat. You can make your sim shy or outgoing. You can make your sim lazy or active, serious or playful, grouchy or nice. Management in the video game The Sims involves decision-making. From physical environment layouts, designing, designing the home, the room, the paint, the tiles, the floors, the walls, yes, even the window placement. To the mental outlook, personalities, motives, needs, whether they're married, whether they have kids, skills, whether they are mechanics or able to cook or have charisma or even mental and physical levels of development. Also, you will just simply take over and be immersed in their daily lives. Activities include buying and replacing up to 150 unique items for households and offices, selling and replacing worn-out furnishings, and otherwise building and maintaining the world in which your sims live. Now, what may surprise you or not, depending on your knowledge of this video game, is that The Sims is the best-selling PC game in history selling more than 16 million copies since its first release 10 years ago. In March 2009, Electronic Arts, the publisher of The Sims game, announced that The Sims as a franchise has sold more than 100 million copies. What makes this game so wildly popular? Here's a quote from an article I read on the subject. Some say that it is the experience of playing God that is a major selling point of the game. There is definitely something to be said about living someone else's life and being the one that is in control of everything that happens. You can become whatever your heart desires. It's like being able to live out your fantasies, as one gamer player wrote. It's like being able to live out your fantasies, even though in real life you would never do those things. What you may not know is that the Sims video game grew out of a franchise called Sim City, which was an original PC game back in the early 90s. And the, job, the place of Sim City was you were to build and manage an entire city. My brother used to, when we used to play video games, we always got video games like three systems too late. <laughs> so like we got the Atari in like 1990, <laughs> and it came out in like 85. We got the Nintendo Entertainment System when there was always already Super Nintendo. Um, then we bought Sega Saturn, and then it, like, dropped because nobody cared about Sega Saturn. So we spent, like, $300 on Sega Saturn, and it, like, dropped after a year because it wasn't popular. <laughs> like, well, the one time we get the good system, it doesn't even, it's not even successful. 
And um, my brother used to sit for hours and play, uh, like, games where he would uh, work, you know, amusement parks. And he was in charge of building rides and adding. He loved these business games, managing these little kingdoms. Well, maybe some of you aren't into video games, but you love risk. Same thing. You are managing and controlling a kingdom. Or maybe you're just into fantasy football. Same thing. Uh, the truth is, not to say anything against those things, the truth is that we are all made in the image of God, and part of that image is being committed to building a kingdom. We are kingdom builders by nature. The popularity of the Sims games and SimCity and Risk and fantasy football and other things like this just illustrate this. We are made to be kingdom builders, but the question is this. Whose kingdom are we building? Are we building an imaginary simulation kingdom or the real kingdom? There is a real kingdom. How do we know if we're building an imaginary simulation kingdom or the real kingdom of God? Well, for the answer to this question, we turn to the little letter of 3 John. It is the shortest letter in the New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1026. And tonight, as Pastor Ted said, I'm going to continue in our little survey through the neglected, what I'm calling the neglected New Testament, the books of the Bible that we don't pay much attention to because they're so short. Just one chapter. And so we're going to read the entirety of 3 John, 3 John, John's third letter. And we'll begin at the beginning, verse 1. John writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Love, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seeing God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Well, as we just read... This letter is basically a brief biography of two men building two very different kingdoms. We have Gaius in verses 1 to 8, whom John is writing to, who's building the kingdom of God. And then we meet Diotrephes in verse 9, who's building the kingdom of self. And these are the two kingdoms we want to consider tonight. 
under two points, really three points. Here's the three points of my message. I want to go ahead and give them to you in advance. First point tonight is Gaius, building the kingdom of Jesus, verses 1 to 8. Point number two, Diotrephes, building the kingdom of self, verses 9 and 10. And number three, you, building the kingdom of Jesus or self, verses 11 and 12, through the example of Demetrius. Point number one, Gaius, building the kingdom of Jesus, verses 1 through 8. How do we know that Gaius is building the kingdom of Jesus? Before we get there, it might be helpful to figure out who this Gaius is. We don't know who Gaius is, so let me move on. (laughs) Now, actually, Gaius is a very common Greek name, and it would be like John or Paul or Randy, I guess. Um, But just a common name that would have been used all throughout the Greek world, and John is writing to this man whom he has great affection for named Gaius. And isn't this encouraging that God cares about the Gaiuses of the world? the insignificant people that don't seem to be doing much of anything, nevertheless gets a letter, an inspired letter at that, from an apostle of Jesus Christ, the best friend of Jesus. But we meet Gaius in verse 1, whom John, calling himself the elder, refers to as his dear friend, his beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Jonathan Dodson, a pastor in Texas, mentions, he, he, he gives a talk on um, the three conversions of Christianity, which is kind of a provocative title. Three conversions. What does he mean by that? He means that when we are converted to Christ, we are also converted to two more things. We are converted to the church, the people of God, and we are converted to the mission of God. In other words, we're not just converted to a person, we're also converted to his people And his cause. And that's what we see in the life of Gaius. We see a man who's been converted to Jesus, converted to the church, and converted to the cause of Christ. He's pro-gospel, pro-church, pro-mission. Pro-gospel, pro-church, pro-mission. We see him being pro-gospel in verse 1 to 4. We see him being pro-church in verses 5 and 6. And we see him being pro-mission in verses 7 and 8, and those are going to kind of be my three sub-points under this big umbrella category, building the kingdom of Gaius, building the kingdom of Jesus. So let's take his first conversion, shall we? Pro-gospel, obeying the truth, verses 1 to 4. As I already said, John is writing to his friend Gaius, and he describes him in verse 1 as the one he loves in truth. Now let me just say this. Brothers and sisters, we love each other not on the basis of our similarities to each other fundamentally, our genuine mutual likes, our commonalities, our similar upbringings, our economic status, our class, or general life habits. We love each other for one reason, because we love Jesus, and Jesus loves us. And that is the foundation of, of John's relationship with Gaius. You see that in verse 1, right? He says, whom I love in truth. So the foundation of our relationships in the church must be the truth that we share. But notice in verse 2, He begins to describe some of the things he's praying for Gaius, as well as some of the things he's thankful for about Gaius. Verse 2, he says, Beloved, the second time he called him that, John, I love John. What a pastor. What a great pastor. Continually reminds his people of how much he loves them. Your pastors want to do that for you too, by the way. Beloved, I pray, verse 2, that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health 
as it goes well with your soul. Brothers and sisters, it is appropriate and right for us to pray, not only for our spiritual, our souls, but also our bodies. We see John right here telling Gaius that he he prays in some sense that his body will catch up with the progress of his soul. His soul is doing so well. Evidently, Gaius may be an older individual, older person, and he's praying for his physical health and in somehow that it will catch up to how well he's doing spiritually. Isn't that encouraging? This guy is excelling so much in his Christian life that Paul, or not Paul, John has to pray or prays that, his, that he would have good health as it already is going well with your soul. How do we know it's going well with his soul? Well, he tells us in verse, four, verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Here's why John is so encouraged and sees his soul doing so well. How do you know the mark of a, of a, of a healthy soul, a sign of a healthy soul? It's that they understand the truth and they obey the truth that they understand. They are continually conforming their lives to what God has said in his word. They are aligning their lives with the gospel. Now, what is the truth that he refers to here? He says, I've rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Well, John obviously understands that there is a truth. There is a truth. It is the truth about Jesus. It's the message of the gospel, which if I could just summarize for us, according to 1 John, is this, that Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life, 1 John 5.20, who was with the Father in eternity, Verses one, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Son of God, who is the Christ, who has come in the flesh, being made manifest among us, sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world, and as a demonstration of God's love. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, by becoming the propitiation for our sins, thereby cleansing us from all sin and becoming our righteous advocate with the Father. Therefore, we may have confidence in the day of judgment, Because God has given us eternal life in his Son, and whoever has the Son has life, has received the Holy Spirit, and abides in the Son and in the Father. That is a summary of the truth as presented in John's first letter. It's all about Jesus coming from God, dying for our sins, providing forgiveness and rescue from the judgment of God, so that we'll be brought into God's family, united with his people, be given eternal life, receive the Holy Spirit, and abide in fellowship with the Trinity. That is the gospel. That is the truth that John is communicating. And that is the truth that Gaius is progressively conforming his life to. All the implications of that truth he is applying to his own life. He is working it out and walking it out in life. Let me ask you this question. Do you know the gospel? Do you know this message that I just read that kind of summarizes 1 John? Do you know that? More importantly... Are you living out its implications? Are you conforming your life around it? And here's a more sobering question. Is it obvious to others? Is that not what we see in 3 John, verse 3? For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. We're going to get to this in just a minute, but the basic point of this letter is John is writing to Gaius, who has shown hospitality to traveling Christian missionaries. And these missionaries have evidently come back to John and have testified how encouraged they are with Gaius. 
Let me ask you this question. Is, it, is your progress in living out the implications of the gospel, is that obvious to other people? Say, well, I don't know if it's obvious. How would I know? Um, well, other people can see it. Other people are close enough to you that they can discern growth and progress in your Christian life. Say, I'm not that close to people. I don't, I don't, I don't know that. Well, care groups are one avenue where we can help each other make progress in living out the implications of the gospel so that other brothers and sisters can see us making progress. That is right and good. Notice what John writes of Gaius in verse 4 when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He has no greater joy than to know that people like Gaius are conforming their lives to the implications of the gospel and living it out in their lives. Do you have any greater joy than that? I can tell you this from being a pastor. I have no greater joy than that. I have no greater joy than to see you and observe you making progress in living out the implications of the gospel in your life. No greater joy than that. No, no greater joy. But do you have any greater joy than that? He doesn't say have any other joys, but when you think about all your joys, the things that make you really happy, does the spiritual progress of Christians rank up there pretty high? In John's heart, it does. Big time, because he's pro-gospel. And so is Gaius. So pro-gospel, building the kingdom of Jesus involves obeying the truth. Verses 1 to 4. Knowing the truth and then walking it out. Number 2, building the kingdom of Jesus in Gaius' life also shows up in that he's pro-church. That is, he loves the brothers. Verses 5 and 6. Verse 5. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now, what has happened is that these brothers whom Gaius did not know, these traveling missionaries, have come to where Gaius is, somewhere in Asia Minor. We don't know exactly where, where he is. But he's, they've come, and he has extended them hospitality, extended them love, extended them care, because in those days, if you were a traveling itinerant evangelist going around sharing the news of Jesus with people, if you didn't get support from other Christians, you went homeless. So there were no holiday inns, no comfort inns. The comfort inn was Gaius's house. And Gaius takes these strangers in that he doesn't even know just because they're Christians and welcomes them and loves them in such a way that they go back and testify of his love for them to the church. What and a great guy. What a loving guy. And notice, it took some effort on Gaius' part, didn't it? It wasn't an easy thing to do. He was somewhat inconvenienced. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. John knew that it wasn't easy. John knew that it was an interruption in Gaius' weekly schedule to... Take in. I mean, it wasn't like he got a phone call. Hey, by the way, the Christians are coming. We'd like you to house them and give them a meal. But he opens his home. And by the way, you don't even know him. And he welcomes them in. And he says, it's a faithful thing you do. Now, literally, a thing of faith. It was a thing of faith that you did. Meaning, 
you were so rooted in the gospel of Jesus, so living out its implications, so walking according to the truth that you did this. Love for Christians flows out of the gospel. Love for brothers showing such lavish love to strangers, so lavish that they would go back to their home church and testify to how much Gaius loved and cared for them, comes from faith in the truth. So he loved the brothers. He was pro-church. He welcomed them, and he sent them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Is your love for others based and grounded on the truth? Are you showing such hospitality and love to people, to strangers even, people you don't know, Christians you don't know? Is the way you love fellow Christians renowned? That's the challenging part for me. John's, not only was John's personal walk with, not only was Gaius's personal walk with Jesus such that it was, it called attention to itself in a good way. But his love for fellow believers was such that it called attention to Jesus, too. Because it says in verse 6 that these brothers came back and testified to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Let me say this. Anything less, and this this is the challenging word for me, anything less than A love that would be renowned is not worthy of God. Especially love toward the household of faith, love towards fellow brothers and sisters. I'm just so encouraged by Gaius' example of of obedience to the truth and of love for the brothers. Not only is he pro-gospel and pro-church, he's also pro-mission. Look at that in verse 7. For they, talking about these missionaries that have come, these evangelists that have come to stay with Gaius and have now returned home. He says, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. They have gone out. They have left their homes for the name of Jesus Christ, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. See, in those days, there were lots of traveling speakers and philosophers who went around. And they were supported by people who believed in them. But John knew and Gaius knew that these Christian missionaries were not going to get any support from unbelievers. They were not going to get any support from the Gentiles. The only way they were going to get support and love is from Christians. And these guys have gone out for the sake of Jesus Christ, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. And John tells Gaius in verse 8, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Isn't that encouraging? Gaius is just as much involved in advancing the mission of God by showing hospitality to strangers who are missionaries than those who are on the front line going out for the sake of the name themselves. He says we are fellow workers with them. John knows that not everybody is called to lay their life down and go to Pakistan. John knows that there are front-line people And there are support line people. There are people who go down in the well, and there are people who hold the rope for those who go down in the well. And it's so encouraging to know that we can be pro-mission about the cause of Jesus Christ, of making disciples of all nations, through not only front line work, but support line work as well. 
John is front line. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's lived his life under persecution for taking the gospel out as a disciple. He's going to be exiled. And he's going to write Revelation on an island isolated from other Christians. He's paying the price on the front line. But he's got Gaius's behind him, supporting him, loving him, caring for him, and also caring for those whom he has trained, discipled, and supporting as well. So how do you support the cause of God? How do we support the cause of God? Is it done in a manner worthy of God? With whom are we fellow workers for the truth? So we see Gaius, an example of building the kingdom of Jesus. He's a man who's committed to the gospel message himself. He's living out its implications in obedience. He's loving the members of his church and welcoming strangers who are not members of his church, bringing them in. And this guy is a blue-collar guy, probably not a pastor, just some man who's exercising some degree of leadership in the church and influence in the church. He may be a deacon or something, but he is... Loving the gospel, loving the brothers, and loving the cause of Jesus. And that is what it means to be a builder of the kingdom of God. But we also see a second guy here in this story, a man by the name of Diotrephes. And he is a builder of a different kingdom. He's a builder of the kingdom of self. He's anti-gospel, anti-church, and anti-mission. And we're going to see those three things in verses 9 and 10. First of all, he's anti-gospel. How so? Verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. How can I say he's anti-gospel? Well, there's no evidence that he's embraced some sort of strange heresy, but Whereas Gaius is understanding the truth and living out the implications of the truth based on the apostolic word that he's heard from John, Diotrephes, on the other hand, is hearing that truth but not living out its implications. He's anti-gospel. He's not allowing the gospel to take root in his own heart and actually get worked out in his behavior. He does not acknowledge John's authority. He's anti-authority. He's a guy that has to be first and get his way in everything. But not only is he anti-gospel, rejecting authority, he's also anti-church, dividing the brothers. Whereas Gaius loved the brothers, sacrificed for them, made efforts to, to house them in such a way that would be worthy of God, meet their needs, give them a bowl of soup in Jesus' name and a warm bed, send them on their way. Diotrephes is wreaking havoc. Division, speaking against others, undermining leadership through petty fault-finding, being divisive. We see that in verse 10, don't we? So if I come, John says, I will bring up what he is doing. John's a faithful pastor. He confronts sin. I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. He's spreading rumors about the apostles, trying to undermine their authority and enhance his own. And then he says, and not content with that, because 
Such sin is never content. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He's not doing what Gaius is doing. Gaius is welcoming these true Christian teachers. He's welcoming in his home, loving them, caring for them, sending them on their way. Diotrephes won't even let him in the city, won't even let him in his house, and discourages the church from even allowing these Christians to come in, to be welcomed. He divides the brothers through his malicious activity, speaking against the apostles, undermining leadership, practicing dirty politics, being divisive and undermining leadership. He's also anti-mission. He's anti-cause of Jesus. Where do we see that? Well, he's, he's outright hindering the mission, isn't he? We see that at the end of verse 10. He refuses to welcome the brothers, and this also stops those who want to welcome the brothers and puts them out of the church. He is hindering the mission of Jesus. He's, he's trying to, to, to cut off the supply line, the support people. These evangelists are showing up in the community, needing rest, refreshment, encouragement. And John is stop, or not John, Diotrephes is stopping those who want to help them. They're coming to Diotrephes saying, hey, we heard these Christian evangelists are going to show up and we would like to house them. No, that's not a very good idea. You shouldn't do that. They're false teachers. Don't do that. You don't know these men. I know them. They come from John. He's not right. I mean, things like that, right? He's trying to hinder the mission. These guys are coming forward saying, please let us support. And he's saying no. And if you do it, you're out of here. I'm going to put you out of the church. This is a power-hungry deacon or something along those lines that's going on. Some kind of crazy wacko who is devoted to his own agenda and his own cause doesn't acknowledge authority, spreads wicked nonsense about people, refuses to welcome godly people, and puts out godly people from the church who want to help other godly people. All for this reason, he must be first. Because he's committed to building a different kingdom than Jesus's. He's committed to building his own kingdom. Power-hungry people in the church that micromanage everything and have to have everything their way or the highway are building their own kingdom. They're building their own kingdom. Squelch, got to come through me first. Got to come through me first. Got to come through me first. Me first, me first, me first. Hear all that? It's the spirit of diatrophies. It's alive and well in our day. Alive and well. doesn't just have to be pastors either influential people in the church who undermine leadership, divide, spread malicious things, petty fault-finding. You know this, 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 you know this. Because it's all about me, 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 not about Jesus. So outwardly, he's hindering the mission by refusing to welcome the brothers. And inwardly, he's hindering the mission by stopping those who want to help the brothers and putting them out of the church. Let me ask you this question. Do you inhibit the gospel? Do you hinder the gospel? Does everything have to go by you? 
Does everything have to be okay with you? Do you have to micromanage and control everything, and if you don't fully understand everything, you can't submit to it? Are you angry that I said that? (laughs) I don't have anybody in my mind, brothers and sisters, really. Just trying to be faithful to your soul, faithful to the text. Well, let's conclude here by, by taking a little look at ourselves. First point, Gaius building the kingdom of Jesus, verses 1 through 8. Second point, Diotrephes building the kingdom of self, verses 9 and 10. We saw Gaius, pro-gospel. He's obeying the truth. He's pro-church. He's loving the brothers. He's pro-mission. He's supporting the cause. We see Diotrephes building the kingdom of self. He's anti-gospel. He rejects authority. He's anti-church. He divides the brothers. And he's anti-mission. He hinders the mission and the cause of Christ. Now let's ask the third point. You, building the kingdom of Jesus herself. Because John brings this all in and wants to apply it to Gaius personally and to us as the church today. Verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Let's just call it what it is. Okay? Let's call it what it is. When people behave like diatrophies and they reject authority and they divide brothers from each other and they hinder the mission of God, that is evil. That's what John calls it. It's flat-out evil. But when people love the gospel, conform their lives to it, love the brothers, support them as opportunity comes up, even if it's unexpected, extend hospitality to strangers, care for brothers and sisters in need, and support the cause of the gospel in little ways like serving soup to traveling missionaries, fellow workers for the truth in doing stuff like that. That's imitating God. It's doing what is good. And then he says in verse 11, whoever does good is from God. Whoever whoever is like Gaius, who loves the gospel, conforms his life to the gospel, loves the church, loves the cause of Christ, is from God. This is not how you get right with God. We get right with God by believing that message that that I mentioned at the very beginning, the truth about Jesus and his coming and his dying and his forgiving our sins and his rising from the dead, giving us eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit, all that. That's how we get right with God. But what evidence comes from that? A life like Gaius's, a life that loves the gospel, that loves the church, that loves the mission, that loves the cause. Who we imitate reveals what we worship, isn't it? Whoever does good is from God. It's evident that they're from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God no matter what they claim. Diotrephes, with all of his, perhaps, defense of what other people are saying about him, I know God. He does not know God. He has not seen God. Because he's behaving in ways that are anti-gospel, anti-church, and anti-mission. Mark Dever asked this penetrating question. John's letter presents us with two patterns for life in the church. A life that takes trouble for the gospel and a life that makes trouble for the gospel. Is your life taking trouble for the gospel? Are you sometimes inconvenienced? For the sake of the gospel? Or are you making trouble for the gospel? Building the kingdom of God or building the kingdom of self? 
Whose kingdom are you building? God's or your own? Now, let me close with just a few words of application here. I hope that my burden for this message, I was telling Katie this, is I said, I hope I don't burden our dear people down with, with feeling like they've got another list of to-dos. This is not meant to be a to-do letter. This is, yes, in some sense, it is, it's teaching, what, it's giving us a portrait of what a godly life looks like, what a life that's committed to building the kingdom of Christ is all about. But I'm not saying, okay, you've got to be more hospitable. You've got to make sure whenever we have a traveling missionary come here that you house them because that's the primary application of this text. Or, you know, make sure you support every missionary cause with your financial giving. While all that is good and right and true and it's proper place, the main thing I wanted to preach to you tonight was to get a vision, was to just see, just to, to taste a life, to taste Gaius, to see this guy who's just an ordinary Christian doing his part, laboring faithfully in his calling to make enough money, supporting his church, loving his brothers, caring about the needs of the people other than his own, extending hospitality, even never using the excuse, I don't even know those people. doesn't use that excuse. He says, do they know Jesus? Then I want to know them. I want to know them. And he's holding out that. And he's just holding it out to you as a vision. And he supports the cause. And an apostle writes to him and says, I have no greater joy than to know people like you. Isn't that encouraging? It's meant to be encouraging. It's about loving Jesus and loving the church and loving the mission and loving the gospel. That's what it's about. It's not not about doing hospitality as a to-do list thing. It's about capturing a vision for what it means to build the kingdom of Christ in your small part, in your small area. So the questions we need to be asking ourselves are big questions like, do I love the gospel? Is my life being more conformed to it? That will give evidence. How do I know that? Well, it will be evidenced in love for your brothers and sisters and the ways that's getting concrete worked out in your life as opportunities come up for you to love others. And then are you supporting the cause? Do you hear about things that about the cause of Jesus Christ and your heart starts beating a little faster because his name's going out more and you love that name. You love that name. You want that name to be famous and published in Owensboro and the state of Kentucky and the United States of America and and North America and the Western Hemisphere and the world. So anything that you hear about the, the cause of Jesus Christ makes your heart beat a little faster. That's the spirit we want, brothers and sisters. That's what we want. We want your heart. We don't want you doing hospitality because that's what pastor said to do. We don't want you giving money because that's what the pastor said to do. We want your heart. That's what we want. We want your heart because you can be a diatrophies and do all that, at least in your spirit. And let me say this in closing. You will have no greater joy. We are workers. Paul described his pastoral ministry in 1 Corinthians one twenty four as workers with you for your joy. That's what I am. I'm working for your joy. And I'm directing you to the path of joy, which is on the same path that Gaius is walking. And I want, And so many of you are already on that path. You're on it. You're on it. 
You love the gospel. You are growing in grace. You're conforming your lives to the implications of the gospel. You love the church. You're growing in your love for brothers. You're befriending strangers. You're getting after the mission. And I just want to say, keep it up. Keep it up out of love for Jesus. And because of his great love for you, keep it up. And lo and behold, wouldn't it be great? And and this will be the testimony of your pastors as we see you do this. I have no greater joy than to see Heritage Baptist Church being devoted to Jesus like this. We have no greater joy. And more than our own joy, Jesus' joy is more important than that. And when he looks down on you, he's the chief shepherd of this church. He's the senior pastor. And when he looks down and sees and he says, there are my people, full of Gaiuses, full of nobodies, full of people that are never going to have a book written about them. Nevertheless, get a page in Scripture. Because that's how much the little things mean to God. Huge to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful letter of Third John. This little page in our Bibles is so power-packed with truth, we can't even hardly take it in in 40 minutes. And we just thank you with all of our hearts for the example of Gaius. Thank you that we're going to meet him one day, be able to shake his hand, talk to him. And we love him already. We love him already because he belongs to you and he embodies everything that we want to continue to grow in as a church, loving the gospel, loving Jesus, loving our brothers and sisters, and loving your cause. Father, if there are any of us tonight that have the spirit of Diotrephes residing within us, anti-authority, divisive, bucking pastoral requests. There's any, if there's anybody, would you humble us by the grace of Jesus Christ? That though he was rich, he laid aside everything to become poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. That though he was equal with God, nevertheless, he forsook the glories of heaven, humbled himself and became a man, a servant, and died the death of the cross. Would you humble them and bring them to gospel sanity and bring them back to a spirit like Gaius's? Thank you that the spirit of Gaius is the spirit of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he loved us as strangers. He served us as strangers. He welcomed us into his house. We had no business being there. And pray that you would fill our hearts with love and gratitude toward him and that you would move us forward as a church in loving the gospel, loving each other, and loving the world you came to redeem. In Jesus' name, amen.